Imagine a world where you knew that you mattered and you belonged. The people cared about you because we were so darn good at listening to one another, no matter how different we are. That is what Sidewalk Talk is doing by putting listeners on sidewalks all over the world so that we can practice the art of connecting. Join me, founder and director Tracy Rubel, as I interview experts on the fine art of human connection and interview some of our volunteers who've been listening on the sidewalk and even some of the folks that we've listened to. And if you want to volunteer, consider joining us at sidewalk-talk.org. What can I say? Jane Cunningham, who was a previous guest, turned me on to David Bedrick. And I love how utterly himself he is. I started following him on Facebook. He's a process worker, which is like Arnie Mandel stuff. But he's really a, a former attorney, and he's a teacher. And he wrote this book called Talking Back to Dr. Phil, Alternatives to Mainstream Psychology. And then uh, another one, Revisioning Activism, Bringing Depth, Dialogue, and Diversity to individual and social change. His latest book is You Can't Judge a Body by Its Cover, 17 Women's Stories of Hunger, Body Shame, and Redemption. So heavy stuff, all the stuff you guys know that I'm into. Um, gosh, what a sweetheart of a human, but dang wise. And he talks a thousand miles a minute, which I kind of love. So if you want a fast-paced conversation, tune in, this conversation with David Bedrick. Okay. David Bedrick, I first want to start by saying how grateful I am to get to spend some minutes with you. And um, I want to say thank you to Jane Cunningham for turning me on to you. There's something very sweet about how you have been showing up in the way that you do facilitator training, the way you show up as, I like your phrase, psychological activist, but mm you're not just performative. Like I just watch how you talk to people on Facebook and it's really mm. been nourishing for me. So mm. I'm really excited to be in a potentially nourishing conversation with you right now. So thanks for Thank being you. here. Thank you. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You know, I kind of stopped you to come on right now because I was super intrigued by this new book that's out. And it's such an interesting, so you're this white dude from New York who wrote a book about women's bodies. You can't judge a body by its cover. 17 women's mm. stories of hunger, body, shame, and redemption. Mm. And I'm so fascinated by this context of what had you want to write on this particular topic? Tracy, it's such a deep question in this way. Actually, I get teary when you ask me that, I'm shy to say, but it I've thought and rethought about that question because I've been asked it in many different ways. Some people are like are asking, what the hell? How would you know anything? Kind of a question. That's not the way you're tone, right? Some people are like just really curious and there's so many different orientations um, around it. And I think I get teary because it's such a deep thing for me to try to say what's really true around that. I can say certain surface things. Like I know how that happened. I was, that story, that story is, I was teaching at a university, a critical thinking class. And I did that a number of times a year for eight years. And at the end of that class, I would say to people, take everything we've learned and you can write a final paper on anything. You could write about Iraq. You can write about 
your mother, you could write about, you know, whatever, anything you wanted, your house flowers, but you have to critically think about the issue in a new way. And then a number of women wrote about what I would now call body shame and body image. I don't know if they use that word. I'm wanting to lose weight. I don't like the way I look. I don't like the way people look at me. And I didn't think more about it other than that's a good paper. Let's see what you did. But that happened so regularly. A certain percentage of women did that, saying, I would love to be able to rethink that. That I was like, oh, I, I am like working with people psychologically. I'd love to learn a little bit more. Maybe I'll interview a few of those people and see what they have to say. So I interviewed a few people and I was like, this is fascinating. People have this sense about their bodies, efforts to change their bodies in ways that are repeatedly, powerfully unhelpful. <laughs> um, and um, so I started learning things that were fascinating to me. I thought, this is worth learning more about. I know this is how I get. I'll do a study. I'll put up a sheet of paper at the school and say, anybody, any gender want to talk about body stuff, body image, diet, weight. If you're a part of a study, you'll get some time with me, maybe one, two, three, four sessions. And in exchange, you'll say, I give you permission to use my material however you want without my name. So 21 people signed up. How many men? Zero. Yeah. Isn't that, I mean, there's things to say about it, but, but first, isn't that powerful? Not that you would know it. Many women would know that. Many men would know that. Many more women would know that. It's just so powerful already piece of research, right? Now, later on, I thought maybe I would have to have framed it for men differently. Maybe I have to say something else about esteem and male bodies or I don't, something to frame it that maybe would have invited men. I think that would have helped if I wanted to get more men, but I didn't think about it at, the, at that moment. Mm -hmm. um, but I, at that point, I thought maybe it's a study. Maybe I should just stick with what I've got here mm -hmm. and then i did at a deeper level tracy there's two things one the more personal part is i grew up in a violent home a violent father right who used fists and belts and threatening violent ways and a mother who was incredibly disempowered meaning she couldn't do anything about it she couldn't say that, don't do that to my children, or I'm yeah. out of here, or F no, or whatever that was. She couldn't do that. And the way I understood that as I grew up, I didn't have these words. I needed a witness. I wasn't focused so much on my father's violence as my pain. It was awful. <laughs> but I was focused on how come I have, in this case, a mother. It could have been someone else. It could have been a teacher or a police officer or a therapist. How come I'm with somebody who doesn't see what's happening? Yeah. So the idea of having a witness to somebody else's suffering, my own and other people's bodies and difficulties became mm. a very important thing to me. And I became, and maybe always was deeply moved by witnessing other people's stories. I mm. became most interested in race issues as a more or less white Jewish man when I was young. Somehow that moved me. I lived in New York in a place where there was lots of racial diversity. And I had parents who were racially nasty, hostile, biased, however you want to white supremacist. Yes, all those kinds of things. It hurt my heart. And I wanted to see then African-Americans different. I wanted to witness that. Not like my mother witnessed me. 
So I would read, I'd read black poetry, mm. black music, black authors, talk to black friends. I just wanted, to, what's it like being you? Mm. I don't think I knew I was learning about myself yet, mm-hmm. that that was also me, that other, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? I'm not mm-hmm. black or I'm not a woman, at least in, in the social identity, but I didn't mm-hmm. think I was learning about myself, but I was, but I was like, maybe they know something and they did. Mm. People knew something. And then I mm. started getting more interested in women's poetry, women's music, women's experience as a group of people that get othered or marginalized by a culture. And I mostly wanted to learn. Like you figured something out <laughs> because you've had to. What mm. did you what did you figure out? What do you know? So mm. my fascination of hunger to learn from other people was really important to me. So it doesn't mm-hmm. surprise me that I ended up in this case, wanting to understand women's stories. And then in the book, not tell my thinking, although I have thinking I learned, but I wish I learned from them, but tell their stories. This is Mm -hmm. what it's like when someone's witnessed. If you ask them, what's it like to be them? In this Mm -hmm. case, a woman or a black woman, what's it like to be you? And you witness with the, I believe you're telling me something really deep. Then people start learning things and saying things they didn't know. I didn't Mm -hmm. know. Most people don't know. And I love that discovery. Mm. Yeah. Gosh, I the word that's just coming into the foreground is this deep longing that you had to be witness that you've now then transmuted into the as the witnesser. Yeah. 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 Has it fed your soul? Has it has it scratched that longing itch so that in the learning and hearing stories you do feel witnessed? So much so. And in so, it makes me, again, I got teary. I must be in a feeling place. Not that I'm not sometimes, but so much so in so many ways, I've intellectually learned about what I call a shaming witness. I built a whole psychology around and teach people to facilitate based on what I call a shaming and non-shaming witness. Mm-hmm. What happens when you look at it as people a certain way. I've learned about my own story, the places in me that I thought, this is where I'm screwed up. Mm-hmm. This is where I'm a mess. This is where I can't get over something. And it's been, I'm 66. Why am I still working on my father complex and issues? When I'm 66, shouldn't I be over that? The places where I look at myself and things aren't progressing. And then I talk to other people. Oh, you're a black woman. Oh, let me tell you about my great grandfather. You want to go back three generations, not just 10 years ago, you know, or a woman and her mother and her grandmother, or a woman who's working for decades on something and thinks, why am I still dealing with this? So the, I learned about that in myself, certain things mm. get held. And then what happens when it doesn't change the way I think it could change or I mm-hmm. want it to change? What happens when I don't pathologize myself, look at myself as a problem, as a sickness that I have to get over, but as an organic flowering, potentially flowering uh, creature. But the other thing is, it's something to do with humanity. Like I read about, I just taught a class and talked about Maya Angelou's early story, a young girl, black girl raped story. And she writes in, in uh, I know why the cage bird sings. And then she becomes silent for five and a half years, literally. And then her grandmother holds that story. The trauma, yes. The race story, yes. The gender story, she's a girl, yes. All that. But then somebody holds that and wonders about the powerful teacher she's cooking up in that silence. Mm. I thought, that grandma, what did she know? Mm-hmm. And she didn't only say, oh my gosh, you're traumatized. Yes, mm-hmm. big deal, right? Don't dismiss that. 
but what else did she do? Mm. And it has something to do with the humanity. So my, I'm not black and I'm not a young girl raped like my Angelo. Mm. But if I can say it and it's somewhat forbidden, I understand she's also telling my story in a certain way. Mm. It's a, also a human story. How mm -hmm. does humanity get seen and flower? What happens with the biggest pains and traumas we experience? How do they unfold? What happens if mm -hmm. I'm not seen or I'm looked at as a problem and mm -hmm. not as a source of brilliance or beauty or creativity? So learning about humanity is very touching for me. Yeah, you know, as I'm listening to you, I haven't read your other book, Talking Back to Dr. Phil, but just mm. listening to you, I'm having a fantasy of what I think it might be about because, <laughs> and, and also there's some serendipity because some of the stuff we're talking about already was what I talked about in my own anal analysis this morning. Oh my gosh. <laughs> so fun. Um, but, mm -hmm. you know, I think what he was confronting me on was, you know, when you've been a therapist in therapy for a long time, you can get really hooked by the potential that therapy has just like diet culture has yes to alter yourself and what i hear you saying is if you hold somebody's story with a certain kind of reverence you don't put the pressure on them to alter themselves but to blossom yeah and what was coming up in me as i was listening to you yes I mean, you call yourself a psychological activist. So when I read that on your site, I got a little excited. I'm like, oh, maybe he shares this thing that I have. I get a little pissed off at psychology sometimes. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. I say, what are you trying to do? Are you trying to make everyone a sliced piece of really boring American cheese where we're all plasticky wrapped mm -hmm. up in that cellophane wrapper so that we're convenient and we go yeah. back to work and we're not a pain in the ass? Yeah. And what I hear you advocating for is the beauty, the wisdom, the complexity, the nuance, yeah. the multi-generational story that a soul holds. Mm. And that the fix-it idea of psychology sometimes doesn't do a very good job of gestating that. Wow, that's beautifully said. You gotta write that somewhere. <laughs> This is what happens when I get, I, I really get into mm -hmm. resonant listening. I treat this mm -hmm. podcast like a by practice. Mm -hmm. So this was, this was co-created with you and me. Yeah. <laughs> this is me. No, Julie, you. I make jokes because yeah. I'm a Jewish New Yorker style, but, but I really was beautifully, brilliantly said. Yeah. The gestating, what cooks, what's cooking in that place, not what's wrong and all that definitely get help and get relieved of painful symptoms and make better relationships with yourself and other people and all those things. And then that next question, what's cooking? What amazing things are growing in that? Do you know that's how I start every therapy session? What's cooking? That's how I start every session. Mm -hmm. What's cooking? I only just realized that when you, when you reflected it back. Uh. In the, in the book, in um, how to, uh, you can't judge a body by its cover. One of the women I interviewed was African-American woman. And she said to me at one point, I got to say something that I'm, I don't think she used the word shy. I, I'm embarrassed to say, or something like that. And I said, what? And she said, I wish sometimes I were thin and white. And she said, isn't that painful alone? We should stop and just feel that. <laughs> The condition of a world where she 
has that ideas in her mind and vision of herself. And of course, how, and of course, I mean, how could a person be immune to that would be a pretty amazing immune system. But, and she said, I know better than that. I don't remember if, we, if she used the word internalized oppression or not, but she got it. She knows that that's in her head, a hurtful view that's not in her own self-loving interest. But the cooking thing is so fascinating. Did anything come out of that? That's an awful thing. If I can make the world change so that she didn't have that experience, I would do my best and do and write a lot about race, you know, if I can help that a little bit. But then the cooking, what happens if I take that as a real experience that she's doing something with? What is she doing with that? What is she, how does she cook that thing? I know I just want to protect people because I'm a protector person. Great. But you can't protect her, David. <laughs> she lives in a world, right? Mm-hmm. So I said, what would be so good about being thin and white? And she said, people would open doors for me. Literal doors, figurative doors to, to opportunities and mm-hmm. things like that. And I said, how come they would do that? And she said, you don't hurt something that's beautiful. Oh my gosh. Mm-hmm. That's stunning to me. Mm-hmm. Stuns me. Even now it like shakes my body. Mm-hmm. for the teaching she gave me mm-hmm. now somebody else might look at a another a man or a white woman or whatever as not beautiful but she's saying something about herself as a woman and as a woman of color and she's also saying something about humanity isn't she mm-hmm. what yeah. happens when you looked at as a valuable thing in this case the value being beauty a flower mm-hmm. a tree not just you're beautiful i like your way of looking you're a beautiful being what happens to a person the doors that open And then I said to her, if people opened those doors and didn't treat you hurtfully and you weren't worried about that, what would come out of you? What would grow? What would cook up? And I thought she was going to say that she would come out stronger and tell people more of her opinions because she had some ideas that were pretty strong that she told me about. And she said, what would come out of me? My love. (laughs) Stunning. Again, I'm like... How would I ever have known that unless she taught me, you know, mm-hmm. offered that to me that, and then am I her too in certain ways? Yeah. What does my love look like? What does your love look like? Maybe it's fierce at moments, tender at moments, educational, vulnerable. What happens if you were treated, if I were treated, if humanity, if we can call it that, trees and the earth, we shouldn't leave, and animals, we shouldn't mm-hmm. leave that, like they're beautiful. Mm-hmm. But love shows up. That's the for me the beyond the gender question that she's she knows though deeper because she's in an experience she has she had to make cooking out of that experience. It's too poignant. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and linking it to what we were just talking about about psychology, there's a way that you're listening. Like if you were in a medicalized model of psychology, and a person says. I don't love myself, then you might come up with techniques to try to change that. But you did something different, which is I almost feel you being wonderstruck in a way by her story in a deeply accompanying and respectful way rather than a Mm -hmm. pressurized change way. Yeah. 
that then allowed a deep wisdom to come from her that you get fed from now. Yeah. Yeah. And then the story goes out and lots of people who aren't exactly her would kind of go, right. Mm-hmm. What if I were looked at as beautiful, what doors would open? What love would come out of me? Because why do I resonate with that story when it's when I'm not my angel? I'm not her, right? Because mm-hmm. it's a human story and a gender story and a race story and a body image story. Can I, I want to take this in a really weird direction because I think this thing happens where you get two white people on a call yeah. talking about the oppression of marginalized people. Right. Yeah. And that, oh, gee, we have so much to learn, the da da da, and our privilege and da da da. Yep. So I'm going to just ask a question that I, I don't know if I've ever asked, but it's, I'm really curious. I think because I have a real, I, I working with couples <clears throat> is my specialty. Uh-huh. And I oftentimes will find men come into psychotherapy feeling really like an outsider. Like huh. I'm not really sure how to use the space in the same way my female <laughs> right. partner does. That's a good insight. Mm-hmm. And and do you think that if women got together and listened to men's stories the way it with a similar kind of reverence, even though you are in a place of positional power, that there is something that needs to be witnessed there too? Mm-hmm. It's profound. I mean, I have an initial wait a second not so fast part, which I'll say, but so, but I'll pass, you know, which is, as you're suggesting, there's a positional power and who's been seen in the culture more often. And all those, those concerns would ought to be witnessed also. Um, But I think it would be really powerful for women to listen to men in that way. Why am I going fast? I'm still hesitant. I must have not said the other side strongly enough because I would never want to give the message. Women should learn. I'm going to let me exaggerate. Women should learn to listen to men. You know, they have a, they're not listening to it. Like that's not going to, that's not the right tone or attitude for it. Um, If a person's been in a, if a person as a woman has been socialized, pressured, like some women have more than men to be a, receiver or listener or something and their development is not about learning to listen better but learning to have voice then that message i wouldn't don't want to give them the message you should learn to listen right (laughs) or that's the problem men are having you're not listening um but there are many women who are well able to and that open to listening and there are some men who are open to ready to be more deeply listened to Mm -hmm. I mean, listen to who you really are, your pains and sufferings, but your soul and what wants to flower in you. Um, Yeah, I feel like there's something that wants to that that. Yeah, I'm totally stuck in the same dynamic you were just stuck in. I'm like, I'm not trying to say that women (laughs) should like listen to, but I feel like there's something tender in men that doesn't get heard. Yeah. And if there was a place for it to get heard, then that tenderness would be able to blossom. And that would go a long way towards creating equality in our society. It's a beautiful vision. I mean, I've had many women therapists, and including now. And yeah, I'm not, I'm not only sure how much their gender was, was the important part, but sometimes I can see it. Sometimes I'm just not thinking about the gender part of that relationship. But sometimes... Um, I've been in spaces where that's been really important. Mm -hmm. So 
This is an activist book, though, because you are amplifying a group of people. And to me, I have this weird relationship to wait. I still feel so this is what was funny about my own analysis this morning. I'm turning 50 next week. Mm-hmm. And I was going down this reverie of my young life <laughs> and storytelling and teary and all the things. And one of the mm. things that came up was body image, right? But what came up for me was how when I was a teenager, because I was an athlete, I didn't struggle with weight. And I thought of my body as an athletic tool, not a sexual object or a beautiful object. And Mm -hmm. so I didn't enjoy hanging out with my teenage girlfriends because they were obsessed about their body image and their weight. And I found it very droll. Yeah. Talking about that all the time. So that that's the serendipity in this right now. But at the same time, the amount of life force that women put in to altering their bodies. I mean, I have lipstick on, Mm -hmm. I have mascara on, so Mm -hmm. I maybe don't have body image, but I have some other image issues. Yeah. What about this is psychological activism, this Mm -hmm. listening to these stories curating them, putting them in a book, being on this podcast, talking about these stories. I think the the, number of things, the way sexism and internalized sexism work is a very important thing to notice. Here's one thing I learned from almost, I've now I've interviewed many people in my private practice, but but I've interviewed people for the research purposes, which means I just want to record and study uh, with lots of people. And But I started off with 21 and I wrote 17 of them, but there are many more I've, I've added to my uh, to my research. But here's, here's one central thing about sexism. Then I want to say something more broad. More broad? Yeah. Um, I'm laughing at myself. It's more broad. This is, a, this is a lot. But one thing that, one way that, that internalized sexism works is like this for many women around body image weight something a woman looks in the mirror of her own eyes a literal mirror and sees something and there's a set of eyes that say let me scrutinize your belly your thighs your breasts your hair your whatever right your arms whether they're getting older let me scrutinize that and make a critique those eyes are invariably intertwined with internalized sexism. It's like a patriarchal view that's saying, it's kind of saying, you're not attractive looking this way. That just happens, right? So that's, that's an important thing. Now, if that's part of, if a woman says, I want to lose weight, if part of her motivation is those eyes, that's because I'm not attractive because of this or that, and the criticism inside are usually not as benign as what I'm saying. It's more like you ugly, da da da. No one's ever gonna love you. Da da da. Hide yourself. Wear these kind of stripes. Don't eat French fries. It's it's more violent. Research says ninety eight percent of women have violent voices in their head every day about their body, and it's not minor violent. Not like you know that doesn't look good on you. And I'm not talking about that. I would repeat them, but then we'd have to slow down and hear them because they're so gross. So let's say, let's say I'm that woman and I have those voices in my head. David, look at you, you know, Debbie, look at you, whatever, look at you. Oh my gosh, you know, pinch your, your belly. You see that? Oh, you gotta touch that. Oh my gosh, you see it. And that was happening. And let's say that motivates me to go to diet program X, right? 
There's tens gazillions of them, right? And you pick any one you want. Some of them are better than others, but regardless of what the diet program is, let's say that motivates me. Now I get to the diet program and I start doing it. And what happens? It doesn't sustain. That happens. 95% of people don't sustain any weight loss after one year. 95%. That's shitty medicine. Right? You can count on it, regardless of the program. That doesn't happen. So now I don't sustain. How come? Why do I try it and not, and try it and not, and try it and not stick it out? The normal mind, the average mind says, I'm lazy, I'm not committed enough, I'm, I'm sabotaging myself, I'm all those kinds, of, I'm, oh, I'm a loser in some way. What I learned in the stories is what happens is something sends a person, in this case, a woman person, to change her body shape and look. And something in her doesn't want to be put down and told that she's not attractive and resists. If I said to you, Tracy, boy, I would never do this. I shouldn't say this to you. If I told some woman sitting next to you, right? Look at you. You should do this. You should do this. Right? You, you alone. I don't know you well enough, but you would say, get the hell off my show, right? Or how dare you talk, right? It's like, and that happens inside. So in some way, you put a person down. They try to change under that downingness. And out of self-love, not out of sabotage, they resist. I'm how long? Oh, maybe I start losing weight. And I start feeling better about myself. Now I'm really going to tell you to f off, and I'm going to divorce you. You know, <laughs> right? So yeah, the way that it's like works, this inner paradox. It's an inner paradox. I do something under a kind of self shaming, self hating. I feel better, and I throw the program out. I said, screw you. I'm not. I'm not open. I'm not open to this anymore. So there's a self love involved in saying no more. I'm not going to do it. That's fascinating in terms of the activist aspect of it, to see the inner workings. But then the second thing, and that's, that deserves a lot of thought, and people could sit and think about that. Some people would say, no, it's not that. I just want to be healthy. But if you listen to the voices inside, they're not only, I want very few women just talk about wanting to be healthy. That inner critical viewpoint is rather strong. It needs to be taken on more directly. So, and the second thing is, if instead of those viewpoints, a shaming, you should change, I'll help you change. Okay, no problem. How much weight do you want to lose? Here's how to do that, which goes along with the inner tape, right? Instead of that, if someone says, I want to know you, tell me about your body. What don't you like about it? What do you eat? What do you love to eat? What's the mm -hmm. part that bugs you the most? I want to learn about that. I want to learn about the pizza. I want to learn about your roundness. I want to learn about how much space you take up. I want to learn about all those different things. That way of witnessing, I'm going back to my mother's story now, brings out something. It brings out deep intelligence, like in the woman talking about her, I want to be more thin and like a thin and white person. It brings out beauty. It brings out powers. I got, I got it. Can I, do I have time for a story? Mm -hmm. So the, the first totally story I write about in my book, and it's, I write about it for the first story because for for good reason, because it looks crazy to most people. She's a woman who says, I've been trying to change my body and get healthier. And I have diabetes problems. My mother did and my grandmother did. And, and I've tried different programs over two or three decades. I can't remember how long it was, something like that. So if you listen to her story and just believe in her as opposed to pathologizing her, pathologizing her means, oh, you tried something. Let me give you the better answer. I'll give you David Bedrick's answer, whoever it is, right? Here's the answer. 
If I believe in her, I think, wow, somebody starts a program and doesn't stay on it. What kind of activist intelligence lives in there? Why would she do that? As a, other than she's sabotaging herself and she doesn't get it and she's whatever, other than something that makes her feel bad. Mm-hmm. So I said, what happens when you begin a diet program? She says, I go to the store and I buy sweets, especially chocolate. And she laughs. I said, why do you laugh when you say chocolate? She says, now listen to this one. She says, I don't even like chocolate. Now, to me, this is fascinating. Like, right? Like you're, you're going to, you have an agenda in your life, a goal. This case is to lose weight and get, deal with your blood sugar and your high blood pressure. Hmm. Not only do you not do that, that sounds bad enough. And right. What are you doing? Why aren't you sticking with your program? But then you do it in a way you don't even like to do like at least get a pizza you love and eat those, right? Or something, do something that makes sense to me. It makes no sense. I don't have a sense for that. And she thinks this is crazy. And other people she's told, of course, are like, how do we correct you from doing that, right? Because that's a dumb, idiotic, whatever thing to do. But I think if I were to witness that Mm. and really listen to what she's doing, maybe I'm going to learn something that I would Mm. never know. A marginalized point of view in her. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. So I said, I'm going to put you on a diet program. I'm going to argue, you should do this. You should eat more lettuce and drink more water. That's one of the things that she thought you should do. And I want you to argue for having chocolate. Why would I do that? Like, chocolate, like that's like my problem. I'm like, but chocolate is winning. <laughs> chocolate decides. Something, somebody's eating chocolate. I have no idea who they are. Mm-hmm. Let's go into that. She said, okay. You should have drink more water and eat more salads. Mm, I like chocolate. No, you don't. You don't even like chocolate. That's crazy. Well, we go back and forth. I'm going to have chocolate anyway. Well, that's crazy. Look, just stick with the lettuce, stick with the water, stick with the lettuce. And she says, no. And I said, what do you mean, though? She says, no, I won't do it. And I said, that's a pretty potent declaration you're making, saying no to me. I said, how could you do that? And she starts weeping. She says, I never get to say no to anybody. Exactly. So I'm like, oh, I'm a single mom. I can't say no to my boss because I'm worried about losing my job. Gender and single momhood is part of her story. And my two kids don't have a father around. So I want to be good to them. So I'm trying to be good to them. I just, I just, I just had this like total reverie. And I know because mm-hmm. you're a Mendeli. Go ahead, go ahead. Break me off. It's good. Yeah. Oh my God. So what if, what if all of us women are going on diets? And choosing to fail the diets because it's the actual way that we're trying to rise up against patriarchy to say, fuck you to the diet. I'm just going to continue to fail on the diet because it's our way of being rebellious because to actually be rebellious out there in the world, the way we really want to be, someone might call us a bitch or say that we're too dangerous. So we're just going to fail our diets. And, and the, the diet itself is a representation of patriarchy. Sorry, I just got way too excited listening. That's, that's the point. That's the, that's the point. And that's what I was trying to say even, even early about the internalized sexism and then the fight with it. Where can I, if I had, if I were to express the intelligence that women showed me, then I'd say, just like you said, what better area than how I feel about my body to experience patriarchy looking at me and say, screw you, I'll be any damn size I want. You can make me even make me feel bad, but you can't get me to change and become what you want me to be. That, that's a pretty good voice. 
You yeah. can't get me to change. You just help me figure out what my money issues now. So I'm going to have money issues. journaling after this. Mm-hmm. Well, I got to tell you one more thing about this. this yeah, morning. please. And I said, I, she started talking about saying no when it's so important. I said, Why, what's so important about learning to say no? She said, you don't exist if you can't say no. You don't exist. She didn't say, well, it's important. I need to tell somebody. That's, you don't exist. Now, can you see why I'm not going to get her off that? Her program, which is to eat chocolate. Her program is not to drink water. Her program is to eat chocolate. Okay, friends, we have to do something about it. And maybe we can make more meaning out of that. And she can fight her chocolate standing for a battle in a different way. But first, we have to appreciate the hell out of it, right? Before we go educating her. She, that is the edu- She's educating me, right? And, and us and other people and other women who hear yeah. the stories. Um, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I take a similar perspective I slightly different I mean I'm grooving on internal family systems a lot but I always like I'm like ooh, I gotta find out the intelligence of this I gotta know there's something intelligent going on here I want to know the intelligence I don't want to change it I I see you I mean that's this is what you're doing it's amazing that's what I try to do in my facilitation when I teach other other coaches and therapists and stuff how do you exactly what you're saying how do you bring out the intelligence in there how do you help the gestation as you were saying i love that you talk gestational process what's cooking in this crazy seemingly insane self-sabotaging thing this person is doing if there's something cooking and we can maybe hold it together maybe maybe we're going to cook a, a social activist or a better mother or i don't know what right yeah yeah <laughs> whoever she's going to be yeah i know we're going to wrap up soon but i do want to mm. have our listeners understand more i mean you're not, we talked before we went live, just that most of your work now is really around teaching other people to, to, to sort of work this way, facilitators, yeah. therapists, coaches, mm-hmm. you also facilitate group work too, right? I mean, you go into, you facilitate large groups of people. Yeah. So how I can have, people... I, haven't been, I haven't been doing too, too recently. Well, COVID has kept me away from, uh, yeah. from doing, so. not for every, everyone has a political issue around that. So we'll keep that a little bit gentle, but yeah. Yeah, yeah, well, you can you can be yourself here because yeah. we're listeners, so all of it's yeah. welcome. But yeah. how can people find you? And if they, who are the kinds of people that should be seeking you out to work with you? Yeah. If somebody goes, God, I like this guy, you know, who who, who are the people that who and how works with you? Yeah, who and how? I mean, people who who work with people at some level, doing body work or therapeutic work or coaching work, who are have a fascination, a hunger to learn more about the body and the body's intelligence, not just by diet, et cetera, somatic people, some people call it somatic intelligence, somatic experience, learning ways of contacting the body's somatic intelligence, and then want a lot more range of skills. I call them intervention, um, interventions, how to interact with a person around different difficulties to access that wisdom whether it's through inner dialogue. I do a lot of work with maybe like you doing that with the family systems. How do you make a dialogue like I made with that woman? How do you ask the body questions? How do you ask the earth questions? Um, How do you get the body's movement or dance or nighttime dreams, all the different access routes to pull that intelligence out? Body is certainly one thing and and it's being spoken about more. And that's a great thing, but there's so many ways for people do that. So somebody who wants to broaden or deepen their experience so they can work with complex issues, traumas and abuses and stuff and have a range of skills that can say, I can help access the intelligence of what that person is going through. Mm-hmm. If someone's hungry for that, then 
yeah, my trainings are about that. That's awesome. What and else for did sure. you I can't remember. <laughs> no, just who, who and how. That was it. Yeah. I, I just want to say I appreciate you. You're a busy person who put, puts a lot of um, mm. generosity out in the world. So thanks for mm. coming and talking to all us Sidewalk Talk listeners. And this yeah. is like the fun part. We have this little ritual for how we complete our conversation. Which oh, I forgot to tell, I forgot to say how people get a hold of me. Did, did, did you, did you ask me that too? Yeah. How do oh, they find you? I, What's the best place? Yeah. And yeah. by the way, everyone that's listening though, I mean, they know this cause they listen, but there'll be a bunch of links in the show notes too. But right. for people that don't go to the, to the actual website, where, where yeah. can they find you, David? Some people can find me on Facebook on the David Bedrick. That's B E D R I C K like bedrock. <laughs> um, so people, and then davidbedrick.com is a website. So those two places, lots of people snoop me, hunt me. I'm calling out. I just Googled you so I could find you in all the places. You can find me in all the places. You can find me on Psych Today <laughs> and YouTube and, and books on Amazon and all those other places too. Yeah. Google me. Right. <laughs> Thank you. I always get shy about asking about saying those things. So it's good. To I bring. like tooting people's mm-hmm. horns. So I wouldn't have yeah. let you escape without saying it. Don't you worry about nice. me. Mm-hmm. Um, but this is yeah. my favorite part. This is yeah, my okay. favorite part is I love to get out of the way because you've got to remember that these that there's like 8,000 people in 15 countries that go sit on sidewalks. We haven't been doing it. We've been doing it online, which is a little less fun for the last few Great years. Great work, but, Tracy. Great work. Oh, to them, to them, for sure. Um, but what would you want to say to them? You get to just listen to your heart and it could be words of wisdom or a wish to those people that listen on sidewalks. I was taking a second and see what, there's so much intelligence and beauty and power that lives in us in the places that we get caught and wrestle and struggle and wish we were different in those places. And I just wish everyone had a, a witness inside, outside, a friend, a therapist, a tree that they sit next to that says, I want to know what it's like to be you. Hmm. That question touches me in the moment when you ask, what's it like being you? I'm depressed. What's it like being you depressed? Not the, I don't like it and I wish I weren't. What's it really like? Hmm. I think that's such a humanizing thing for us to share with each other. What's it like being a Jewish male asking women questions what's it like being a whoever you are a pakistani person or a palestinian person wrestling with israel's difficulties outside the the politics is important but then the, the relational question what's it like for you not just this what's your opinion but that deeper humanizing thing that has a potential potential to bond us hmm. yeah that would be my wish very sweet Thanks for being here. And for everyone, please do come back to the show notes and, and click on all the links. Um, I, I was introduced to David's work by someone very, very wise and very dear to me. And it's been such a privilege, been such a privilege. Thank you so much, David. Thank you, Tracy. Really wonderful. Yeah. Thank you for being here and listening to this episode of the Sidewalk Talk podcast. If you like what you heard, tell your friends, tell your family, like and comment on the podcast publisher that you're listening from and subscribe. This will help us get the word out about changing our culture to one of connection.